morning, everybody. Welcome to Christ Church again. My name is Mike. I'm the pastor here. Glad to see you all. We are continuing our series through the book of Psalms. If you have your Bible, uh, you can open it to Psalm 9. Uh, on the back middle portion of your worship guide, we've also printed it off there, so you have that for your convenience. I'm going to invite Henry Ford, who's going to be reading our sermon scripture for us in a moment. Let me just give you an introduction to the book of Psalms, if this is fairly new to you. Uh, the book of Psalms... Uh, In the Old Testament scriptures, 150 of them, 150 uh, different psalms given to us, they are the songbook of God's people. God himself has given the church the psalms uh, through human authors like King David here, so we can know God better, so that we can know ourselves better. In the psalms, we sing songs to God and and we reflect on his uh, majestic grandeur. We, We praise his power, his greatness, his otherness. Uh, We sing songs to this God, and at the same time, we we sing songs that celebrate not only his bigness, but also his his closeness, his tenderness, his care for us. He cares for us, and he knows our names. In the Psalms, uh, we sing songs that express to God our, our gladness, our joy, our thanks for who he is and what he's done. And we also find Psalms that cry out, God, where are you? Why do you hide your face from me? Why is life so hard right now? God gives to the church these 150 songs so that we can trust his goodness. Uh, We can live faithfully before him in all of life's ups and downs. So again, if you have your your worship guide open uh, or you have your scriptures open, you can turn to Psalm 9 now. Please join me in listening to God's word. Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to Mathlaben, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. 
The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for speaking to us in your word. We pray that by your spirit you would now give us comfort, you'd give us help, you'd give us the hope that we need for the journey ahead. So bless this time now as we look, we dig deeper into your word. Would you give us wisdom and insight by your spirit? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. There's an expectation, perhaps you've noticed it as you read your Bibles, as you read through the Psalms, that the people of God are called to be a glad singing people. Psalms like this, Psalms, of course, like Psalm 100, tell us to serve the Lord with gladness, to come into his presence with singing. Every time, I don't know if you've noticed this, there's a pattern when we gather for worship on Sundays. When we meet together, one of the chief things we do is we sing. We, we sing together. We praise God together. I don't just say, hey, you who feel like singing, why don't you join me in singing? This is for everybody, not just those of us with sing-songy, sunny dispositions. The Psalms instruct God's people uh, not only that we can be, but that we indeed ought to be a grateful, thankful, sing-songy bunch of people. At the same time, when you read through the 150 Psalms, you notice that they are filled with laments. These are honest and bold songs sung directly to God, and they describe in detail how God's people often don't feel very sing-songy. Rather, they feel overwhelmed, they feel stressed, they feel anxious, attacked, powerless, without a defender. See, the Psalms are very realistic. They don't, they don't tell us to be glad and to sing with joy by giving us this false uh, pie-in-the-sky Pollyanna vision of what life is. Rather, the Psalms do give us a grounded, realistic picture of life here in our fallen, broken, rebellious world. We do actually have dangers around us. There really are enemies uh, that, that can do us real harm among those that we trust, and maybe especially inside of each one of our sneaky hearts. So this is the problem, and this is the tension that Christians face daily. We're told to give thanks to God, to be glad, to sing praise with our whole heart, while at the same time, we live in a world where being stressed, overwhelmed, disappointed with what life has brought us is very common. And, and perhaps most troubling, in our most difficult times, God himself feels absent from us. God speaks to his people this morning through Psalm 9 to help us with this age-old difficulty, this age-old tension. As we sing Psalm 9 together, as it becomes one of the melody lines running through our faith, we mature, we become more like Jesus Christ in whose image we're being created after. So this is our outline for this morning. Uh, it's a long sentence, we'll work through it together, but this is the first part. When it's hard to give thanks to God today, Give thanks for what he's done in the past. If you find it difficult this morning to be glad, to sing for joy, to, to give praise to God with your whole heart, do this first. Give thanks for what he's done in the past. 
Psalm 9 is another one of the psalms that are attributed to King David, uh, perhaps Israel's greatest king. Uh, It places us, therefore, in the kingdom of Israel sometime around the 10th century BC, so a long time ago. If you look at the title of the psalm, the thing very at the top there, this is uh, a psalm of David. It's a song that was given to the choir master in Israel, who then would in turn direct the people of Israel to sing Psalm 9 together in praise. It's according to the to the Muthlaban, Muthlaban, however you want to say it. Again, this is probably a, a musical or a liturgical term. No one's exactly sure what it is. The scholars do their very best to figure it out, but it's, it's kind of been lost. Um, you also notice at the end of verse 16, if you look at the end of verse 20, there are other notations given. Hegean, Salah, uh, these are terms which were probably used f- by the choir master, uh, maybe a, a musical interlude or a little pause so you can reflect on what had just ha- uh, happened, but we're not entirely sure about that. Now, again, think that you're in the 10th century BC. What's happening in Israel at this time? Well, actually, the nation of Israel is in pretty good shape. 500 years before this psalm, not, not, that wasn't the case, 500 years before the time of King David, at least, they were slaves in Egypt. They were under the, the, the boot of uh, the Egyptian slave masters. It was not a good time. But then Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he heard their cries, he heard their distress, and he came to rescue them. He came, and in power and in majesty, he rescued his people out of Egypt, and he brought them into the promised land. Uh, the land that was, that was far east from Egypt, um, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. This, was, this would be known as the land of Israel. But in that land at the time, there were vicious, strong, wicked nations. Historically, biblically, we can read how they had cultic practices that were grotesque, abuses against the most vulnerable that were so horrific, military policies that were brutal, uh, that, that it is difficult to even speak of these practices. And so God judged the nations that were in that land through Israel. He drove them out. This was God's idea. So Israel, through a lot of its history, you read about in the Old Testament and even in these Psalms, they had long stretches of war and conflict with these nations in the land. Nations that were, incidentally, way more powerful, way more cunning than Israel. But God, in a miracle similar to what he did in Egypt, miracle after miracle, he gave Israel victory over their stronger enemies, and he gave them this very good land that, that David and those in the 10th century are now enjoying. Now, the Bible's very clear about this. God didn't set Israel free from Egypt. He didn't drive out these evil nations because Israel was such a, a strong, noble, moral nation. No, that, that's not the reason why. The reason was simply because God's merciful, because he's filled with love. He's compassionate. He remembered the promises that he made to Abraham. Israel didn't deserve the land because they were so upright. They didn't win the land because they were so shrewd militarily. No, God is very clear. He graciously gave it to them as an inheritance. Listen now, God speaks about this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you, Israel, because you are more numerous than other nations, for you are the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. This is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is what's happening at the beginning of Psalm 9. If you look at the very beginning, verses 1 through 2, they're giving thanks for what God has done in the past. Verses 1, 1 and 2, they start with that typical, glorious, happy, exultant beginning. Um, sing praise to the Lord. I'll give thanks to him with my whole heart. I will recount. That means I will remember all that God has done for us, all of his wonderful deeds. 
See, the people of Israel, they gather together to sing together, and they're glad. They're filled with joy. They sing praises to Yahweh, the God, their God and rescuer. They can remember specific reasons why they should be glad. They're no longer slaves. Uh, they, they could, you know, just look around themselves, look at the land that they had received, a rich, fertile land, uh, and remember, this is all just because of God's grace, because he's loved us. And so Israel continues in Psalm 9 to remember all that God's done for them. In verses 3 through 12, we see them cataloging all that God's done for them as a people in their history. In verse 3, they remember maybe a, a particular battle, maybe the Battle of Jericho, one of the earliest battles in Israel, where, where their strong and powerful enemies stumbled and turned back. Not because Israel was this intimidating army, but because God Almighty fought on their behalf. In verse 4, there's an image that will stick around for the whole psalm. Uh, God being seen and worshipped and praised as a defending, protecting judge. He sits on a throne. He dispenses right and fair judgments on behalf of his people. He sees nations oppressing his people and God the judge says, that's not happening. I'm going to put a stop to this. And he renders his judgments. If you look at verse 5, Israel gives thanks. This is one of the reasons why they praise God. <clears throat> because God has rebuked those nations that opposed them. That God fought against the wicked. That God brought those cities, these wicked cities in their very memory, to ruin. Now this kind of judgment language, it sounds pretty judgy, doesn't it? <laughs> like it can make a lot of people pretty nervous. Is this fair is God being too harsh here? Is he violent and aggressive? Does this God need counseling? I thought the God of the Bible is supposed to be a God of love. Verse 7 and 8 reminds us of something that we need to be reminded of constantly. The kind of God that Yahweh is. What kind of judge he is. Verse 7 reminds us that he sits enthroned forever. He's the eternal judge. He's not a, a fly-by-night, here-today-gone-tomorrow judge. No, he's the eternal God the creator of everyone and everything. He knows all of our words, all of our thoughts, all of our deeds, all of the secret intentions of our hearts. This means that God is the only person perfectly situated to judge everyone and everything fairly. Listen in verses 7 through 8 how he describes his judgment, what we're singing about. God has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness he judges the peoples, that is all nations, every people group everywhere, with uprightness. God's perfect, and so his judgments in the past, long ago, in ancient Israel's day, what we read about in the scriptures, and also his judgments in the future, in the last day, the day of the Lord, where he will come to judge, as the creed says, the living and the dead. We can, be, we can rest assured that all God's judgments are perfectly just. They are perfectly right. That he is wholly upright when he executes them. Nothing's worse than a crooked judge, right? Someone who will bend the law, turn a blind eye to justice because they're indifferent to the cry of the wicked. Maybe they're lazy, they're indulgent, or, or they can be bought for a price. They can be bribed. Yahweh's not like that. He's not that kind of judge. He will never, ever make an unfair judgment. He, he never has. There's no piece of evidence, no angle that he won't see or overlook. No one can rightly say to this judge, that was not just. That judgment was not right. You went too far. You are not an upright judge. 
Of course, many people have leveled that charge against God. They've, they've read the Old Testament. They've, they've looked at the doctrines of heaven and hell, and they've decided that ancient Israel's conquest of Canaan, God's future judgment is too harsh, it's unjust, it's wicked, it's unfair. And they make that claim because, of course, they're not God. Very proudly, they think, look, if, if I can't work out a satisfactory explanation for these judgments, there must not be a satisfactory explanation for these judgments. But this is the reality of who we are. We, we just see in part, but God sees in whole. God can be trusted, even if you can't explain everything. That's not your job. We're simply called to trust. And actually, what Psalm 9 demonstrates really clearly is that God's judgment, the fact that he's a judge, is one of the most praiseworthy, most beautiful things about him. In this psalm, this is the primary reason why God's people gather together to sing and to give praise. We've talked about this before. We've actually seen it over and over again in the Gospels, in Jesus' ministries, that one of the chief ways that God shows his care and his love for his people is by judging their enemies. Uh, Verses 9 through 12 in Psalm 9 highlights this. Why does God judge? Verse 9 says, because he loves to be a stronghold for the oppressed. He he loves to protect those who are in trouble. When God's children are attacked, when they're in trouble and they cry out to God, God's not indifferent to them. He protects his people. He's a refuge, a stronghold. He's their citadel. When Jesus was ministering, uh, he saw people groaning under the power of the demonic, under sickness. Uh, They were tempted and bullied by the proud religious leaders of that day. And what did he do? He didn't just lean back like, well, that's that's unfortunate. No, he acted. He, He didn't hold back. He rebuked. He expelled. He chased away his loved one's enemies. Verse 11 in Psalm 9 jumps up again with praise, just reflecting on the fact that God is the judge who renders right judgments, saying this is good news. This is something we should tell everybody about. This isn't something the church should be shy about. We should be very glad that God is the judge, that he... He cares for the oppressed. He judges the wicked. Verse 12 reflects that, uh, that God is the avenger of blood. This is a way of just describing that there is no evil. There's no crime, no wickedness, no harm to God's people that God is indifferent to. One day he will right every wrong. And, and this, again, is reason to celebrate. It is reason to praise. Now, often people, people outside of the church, sometimes, I've, I've heard it within the church, people rail against God because of all the evil they see in this world. They look around the world, they they turn on the news, they read the newspaper, they see crime, poverty, slavery, they see war, and they angrily accuse God. God, why would you allow this? How could a good God allow such evil in this world? But then, then when those same people, when they read the Bible, they read about a God who acts who does not forget the cry of the afflicted, who loves the oppressed, rescues them from the wicked by judging them, those same people complain, God, why are you so harsh? Why all the judgment? How could a good God be so harsh? I heard a story about a little kid asking his mother, what's God doing all day? What does he do with his time? What's his job? And she answered very wisely, He's mending broken things. That's what God does. See, this is how we need to see God's past judgments that we read in the Old Testament that we we celebrate through Psalm 9. He's mending what's broken. He's undoing all the evil, all the pain, all the sadness that's infected our world. He's healing it. So this is where we're at 
with Psalm 9. When it's hard to give thanks to God today, give thanks for what he's done in the past. So our first task in being a people that are filled with song and celebration, gladness and praise, our first task is to be a remembering people. That's what we must be. And you can start by giving thanks for just little things in your life. There's been a lot of noise in self-help circles about practicing gratitude, right? But, but the OG source of this is the Bible, re- reminding us to practice gratitude, to be grateful to God for what might sometimes seem to us little things in, in our past or present. Has he given you life? Has he given you freedom? Has he given you a measure of health? Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have clothes on your back? Do you have food in your stomach right now? Give thanks to God. Has he answered any little prayers that you've offered to him in your life? Uh, Make a list of these things on our worship guide or on our prayer guide on the info table. There's just a section to remember, to help us to remember the little things that that he's answered, the job that you asked him for, the friend that you didn't know you needed to protect you from danger when you cried out for help. Give thanks to God for the little things from your past. But also, of course, give thanks for the big things in the past. Christians have this great privilege that even the people of Israel didn't have uh, as good as looking back on the exodus was. Christians get to look back on the cross, at the greatest exodus. Remember all that God has done for us in Christ. Friends, you've been forgiven your sins. It's done. Christ has done what he promised you. He has forgiven you, and you are at peace with God through his blood. You've been set free from the power of sin and death. God doesn't have any more judgment towards you. He he has judged your sins. He has dealt with and punished the sin that enslaves you, the, the flesh that hounds you, the death that haunts you. But instead of punishing you, you who have indulged these sins, promoted them, harmed other people with them, in his grace, he has placed them all on his Christ, on Jesus. This is the good news that the prophet Isaiah spoke. Israel had to look forward to this, but we get to look back. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. This is the biggest thing that you get to look back on every day to give thanks for. Jesus Christ, out of sheer love, sheer grace, has taken on your judgment on himself in his body so that you don't have to, so you can be free. When it's hard for you to give thanks, when you come in and you've just had an awful morning, you've had a very hard week, you've had a hard month, you've had a hard year, this is where you begin. You give thanks for what he's done. You give thanks to God for what he's done in the past. Give thanks for little things. Give thanks for the biggest things, for the cross of Christ. Our God has been working. He has been mending broken things. And for that, we can give thanks. But this now moves us on to the next part of our outline, and it's this. When it's difficult to give thanks to God today, give thanks for what he's done in the past so that you can trust him with your present and future. This is why we remember what God has done in the past, so that we can trust him in our present and into the future. Now, it's important to know that even in the 10th century BC, at the time when Psalm 9 was written, during the reign of David, they were freed from Egypt. That is certainly true. They were living in the promised land, but things weren't perfect in Israel. There was still trouble. These were good years, but they weren't perfect years. In David's time, uh, 
the ancient wars were long over, but there were still enemies threatening in the land. There were still some nations close at hand. There was nations surrounding them, which always threatened Israel's safety and security. The Philistines would be one such nation. They were powerful. They were always kind of lurking around the background. If you read through First and Second Samuel, you can see they're, they're just kind of always on the scene. Um, there were coastal people in the Mediterranean, and they were just a thorn in Israel's side. Historically, we know that they had iron weapons well before Israel did. They used chariots. They had a heavy infantry, which Israel didn't have. If they won a battle or a skirmish with Israel, they would take the captives and they would sell them off as slaves, kind of into far and distant lands. The Philistines were a people to be feared. They were always kind of around. They were close at hand. And you can imagine the Israelites gathering gathering together for worship in the 10th century, having these enemies in mind. And and perhaps they struggled, like many of us struggle, to give thanks, to be glad. And so if you look at verse 13 in Psalm 9, you see a little shift that's taking place in the song, a change of tense. The psalmist has been thanking God for all that he's done in the past. He's remembering. But now he says, be gracious to me, O Lord. Right now, be, be gracious to me in this moment. See my affliction, the affliction of today. See my affliction from those who hate me. See, just as God's acted in the past, the psalmist wants God to act today. Hear us. Protect us as you have. Do it now. He's given thanks for what God's done in the past, and he does so so that he can trust God in the present and into the future. See, there's remarkable trust in these latter verses. If you look at verses 15 through 18, there's another change of language tense, and it's what scholars call the prophetic perfect. He speaks in the prophetic perfect. He says, God, you've been gracious to me. You've helped me. And then in verse 15, there's this shift where he says, these nations, they have sunk in the pit. The Lord has executed judgment. The wicked are snared. Now, these things haven't actually happened, right? Verses 19 through 20, if you look at it, he reiterates, God, please arise. God, please act, judge these evil nations. They're not actually put away, but he speaks in those verses as if they already have been. What gives? Well, this is what the prophetic perfect tense is all about. Uh, David speaks about these things as if they are already accomplished facts. See, he's become so certain in God's goodness, in his care, that God is the eternal judge that will not fail to protect his oppressed people, that he's learned to, to trust that it is good as done. That he can speak of his deliverance from his enemies that exist right now as if it's already happened. He can trust and believe it to already be there. The singers of this song, they might have entered into worship with a lot of fear in their heart. They might have been having a really hard time just being glad, not being distracted, knowing that these enemies were surrounding them, that these enemies were bigger and stronger than them. But after remembering and giving thanks for all that God has done for them, they're learning to trust. Look at verse 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. When it's hard for you to give thanks to God today, when there's a lot that you feel you can complain about, lots you have to fear, begin this way. Give thanks for what God's done in the past so that you can trust him with your present and future. Friends, let, let's end with this. Whatever it is you're facing today, 
Whatever enemy is, is troubling you, looming in your background that makes being grateful and thankful, being a sing-songy person on Sunday mornings hard, God can be trusted with it. He can be. You, you, you don't need to worry. You don't need to fear. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. This is who he is. A stronghold in times and trouble. He will not forsake those who seek him. So when you feel this tension, which is real, it's not a modern problem. This is an ancient problem. When you know that you should give thanks to God, you ought to be glad and sing praise with your whole heart. Again, to be repetitious, start here. Give thanks for what God's done in the past. Remember what God's done for his people in the Exodus, in giving them the promised land, in sending them the Messiah, Jesus. Remember God's character, his love for the poor and needy. Remember the little things, the little kindnesses that he has shown to you. Remember the biggest, the Christ has come and shed his blood for you. Remember so that you can trust him now whatever you face here today in your present and into the future. This is how the author of Romans puts it in chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It's a rhetorical question. He will spare nothing to rescue and deliver his people. Why do we sing every Sunday? Why do we gather together and remind ourselves to be glad and to give thanks to God? Why is it that we can always be glad and always give thanks? It's because of this. We, we, we worship the God who sent Christ to rescue us. He is the God who is always mending what's broken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would build our faith, that you would help us to be great rememberers of all that you have done for us in Christ. Father, would you fill even those who are suffering and lamenting this morning with joy as we approach this table, as we remember, see, taste, touch, smell the broken body and shed blood of Christ for our sin and for our salvation, that you would cause us to have a deep abiding joy, a gladness, and a thanks that can't be shaken no matter what enemies surround us on any given day. Father, build our faith. Help your church to sing Psalm 9, to be able to give thanks, to remember, and to trust you with our future. We pray all that in Christ's name. Amen.